Welcome to Two Bits, a podcast about coins and currency, produced by the American Numismatic Association and hosted by Doug Mudd and by myself, Mitch Sanders. Doug, welcome to another episode. This one is going to be a really interesting one because we're talking about one of the most historic items in a hobby that is replete with historic items, and that is ancient coins. The saying is that money is history in your hands, and I think ancient coins exemplify that as well as anything. Whenever I talk to people about coins, people I know, friends, colleagues, when they learn that ancient coins exist, not only exist, but are pretty widely available, that I have a bunch of them, and that pretty much anyone can have one if they want, this really blows people's minds a lot of times that something from the ancient world can be something literally that a person in the year 2020 can hold in their hands. And it's not all that difficult. It's not like handling you know, a, a rare piece of artwork. Coins were uh, very commonly used, and so they're still around. So I feel like ancient coins are really great examples of history in your hands, and that's why I'm so excited to talk to you about it today. Yeah, it's a subject that's near and dear to my heart. One of the, one of the things that has always gotten me excited is the idea of how things started. How did money become what it is today? You know, the, the good, the bad, and everything else. Uh, it started somewhere, and I've been working and studying that for the whole time I've looked at coins. I, I had the fortune, the good fortune, of uh, living in places like Syria, very close to the place of origin for coinage as we know it. Uh, not necessarily the place of origin for money, but you know the, the Fertile Crescent, as it's called, the, the area between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers in Iraq and Iran was one of the birthplaces of civilization. Egypt on the Nile was another one. Uh, you had the Indus Valley, and then you had the, the Yangtze River in China. And all of them had an important early role in the development of what eventually became money. So this is an area that, that uh, is very exciting because, as you say, so many people are unaware that you can actually collect pieces of metal that were used as money as long as 2,600, 2,700 years ago, which is incredible. And they're, they're a lot less expensive than a moderately rare U.S. coin, which is even more incredible to my mind. But it shows you the difference in the, the market. So. Yeah, and what, what other item could a person own from the ancient world, right? Coins, coins are a, a really clear connection to that past history in a way that I, I don't think you could replicate anywhere else with any other, with any other object. So let's go, let's go there. Let's go back to the beginning or, or even before the beginning So to think about how was money developed. So my question with respect to this is, what came before? How were economic transactions handled before coins? Because people were, were engaging in, in commerce before coins were invented. And then another way that I think of that kind of question is, what problem was it, was the invention of coinage solving? What was not possible to do before coinage that then coins became the solution to that problem? Well, it's a great question because you have to envision a time 
when as people began to settle down, they started to discover that if they uh, put seeds in a certain place by a river bank or near water, they could come back uh, in another season and crops would be growing. And they soon began to realize that they could settle down in that place and plant crops on a regular basis. And this became, in a very general way, this is you know, a very shortened version of how all this happened, the start of settled living. Once people began to settle down, you started to have some specialization. Once they had more than enough food, they could afford to have people that would specialize in becoming potters or uh, manufacturers of stone tools, things like this. Once you had that, you started to get a differentiation. Not everybody had to grow their own food. The potter was making enough pots that they could start exclusively making pots for their neighbors, and their neighbors would trade wheat or uh, other foodstuffs for that pot. The problem comes in when you start to need exchanges that get more complicated. So the potter is making pots, the, the stone axe maker is making axes, and you've got uh, the farmer growing wheat. How do you exchange those three things, especially if the potter doesn't need any more wheat and the farmer needs an axe? Right, or, or so the pot, like you might have a conversion between what the potter does and wheat or the axe maker does and wheat but then you need to convert that. You know, what if the what if the axe maker needs some pottery? Like it, it's got to it has to work in all directions. Right, it has to be some and, common standard. And that kind of thing could be worked out in a small village fairly easily. But as as societies got bigger, as towns, as particularly in places like uh, Egypt on the Nile or in the Euphrates and Tigris valleys, the the fertile crescent, one of the centers of early civilization and you started to deal with people you didn't necessarily know, you needed a little bit more organization, uh, a little bit more trust was needed. And society by this time started to get more and more complicated. And it turns out that one of the very first things on the road to creating an actual money is to create a standard of value. So how do you measure the value of different things? So instead of having to do a one-off transaction every time where the potter gets an axe and then trades the axe with the farmer for the wheat that the farmer needs and the potter the potter is giving pots to the, the producer of the axes, you need a system that allows you to compare all of them in a standard form. This is where you start getting into the, the first idea of money money being a standard value. Also, as you're describing this, it makes me think of the element of time, right? Like if the potter could trade all of their surplus of pots for wheat, they would have more than they need right now. So you need some way, in addition to be able, being able to make these exchanges, some way to, to store the value, to produce something now, get some benefit for it that you don't have to use immediately, and then you can exchange that later on. So not just in the moment, but something that will endure and let you reap value from it, not only potentially now, but also in the future. Right. And in places like Egypt and Mesopotamia, the earliest organizations were based on 
individual city-states uh, that had theocracies. So you had a priesthood that ran the religion, and you also had a king or an emperor or, or whatever they call them, chief of chiefs, that uh, often was anointed by the gods as a hereditary chief or something. Well, the, the theocracy consisted of the, the most learned people of the time. They would learn the, the religious history, the, the traditions, and all this. And they became a natural center for uh, organizing larger projects, either building temples or, or building canals, things like this. This is a government slash religious system where they organized projects in the large sense, things beyond what families or individual small groups of people could do. And we know from the records, mostly in cuneiform clay tablets, that the early temple sites had tons of these cuneiform tablets that at first we thought might have histories or stories about the, the culture or maybe be the equivalent of the written works of uh, the religion. And it turns out that the earliest of the tablets are almost exclusively lists. What they list is that so-and-so farmer brought in uh, X number of bushels of wheat as taxes uh, to be stored for future famine or, you know, as a tax form, or that so-and-so brought so many sheep. And it turns out that one of the very first steps in creating money was to create a unit of measure. So how do you measure things? That becomes very important because only when you can measure things can you start comparing different items on a standardized basis. So what is a bushel of wheat? Well, a bushel of wheat fits in this basket and this basket is stored at the temple and it becomes a standard. And when people start trading with each other, they have to have a bushel basket that's about the same size, that is the same size. And uh, one of the first things you, you find is the development of scales. So scales that would allow you to weigh things. So weighing your beer, weighing your, your dry goods. This way you could compare weights and then amounts. So three sheep are worth a bushel of wheat. And you know what you're dealing with when you talk about what, it, what is a bushel and what is a quantity. This also reminds me, I'm fast forwarding by millennia here, but if you look at coinage legislation in the United States, for I don't know how long, but from uh, early times in the United States into the 20th century, the committee in Congress that handled coinage legislation was the Committee on Coinage, Weights, and Measures. So these things always go very closely together, and, and now you're highlighting another really vital connection among them. Right, because a standard of weights and measures is a precursor, a necessary precursor to the development of money. So... We think of money as being, you know, traditionally it was a metallic uh, object, you know, silver or gold, uh, perhaps copper. But uh, originally what happened was people chose certain fairly common things to use as the standard of value. So in places like 
East Africa up until uh, the early 20th century, uh, among the tribesmen, the, the cattle was used as the standard of value. They used that to measure the value of land, the value of the houses, the value of a wife, as far as bride price, things like this. And this is a very, very old practice that went back to uh, at least five or 6,000 years ago, depending on the area that you're, you were in. And in other areas, they would use different sorts of uh, items as the standard of value. But from our standpoint, seeing as how a lot of our traditions came from ancient Rome and the ancient Romans used the Italian tradition of using cows and, and cattle as a standard of value, a lot of our money names actually come from names for cattle in ancient Latin, things like that. Uh, what's, an, what's an example of that, of uh, ancient, ancient terminology like that that then moves forward into units of currency? Well, we have the word pecunia, for example, which has to do with pigs, actually. Oh. So without, without that common standard, it, it would be completely bewildering to try to engage in any kind of commerce, uh, right? Like how, how, much, how much of X is worth how much of Y, there's absolutely no way to know. But if you have a, a common standard of measure, whatever it may be, then you can do that more easily. Everything only has to be done in terms of that, that one reference object. So uh, I'm, I'm sure it took a while for the system to work out, but it, it definitely makes sense as something to just keep, keep accounting on a reasonable basis. So then how did, we, how did we get from a common standard, whatever it may be, varying, to then something more like money like we know it today? So the problem is that when you have a standard that's based on, say, cattle or uh, flint or something like this, uh, we know that flint, for example, was used in long-distance trade and apparently was used as a form of uh, a standard at one point because even in the early stages of the uh, New Stone Age, we find pieces of prepared flint that are 500 or 1,000 miles away from where they were dug out of the ground, obviously hinting towards some sort of trade system uh, where people were exchanging items over long distances. Well, we got from... That, that stage of using some sort of object that was fairly common, that was considered useful and universal enough to be used as a standard for money to what we think of as money, basically using metals, silver and gold in particular, as the basis for money, because it's thought part of it was a cattle flint, other objects like that, the problem is they don't necessarily last that well. And if they are used, they lose their value altogether. So a uh, basic problem would be, how do you make change for a cow? <laughs> uh, you know, smaller, I, yeah, smaller cow? I, I suppose that wouldn't work. Yeah, you know, so that, that becomes an issue. So you've got stakes and you've lost the, the value of the cow other than its immediate value is food, but you also have the problem of, okay, so the development of more sophisticated money is predicated on the idea of societies getting bigger 
uh, more contacts being made between different groups of people, larger groups of people. So if you have a trade arrangement with the city of Ur and the city of Sumer, and they're separated by 150 miles, how do you get that herd of sheep from one city to the other? And when it gets to the other end, is it still the same size? Do you still have 150 sheep? And are they in good shape? Has uh, a shortage of water or a shortage of uh, fodder hurt the herd so that they're all now starving to death? So how do you determine that value? Uh, so there's a lot of complications that can arise. At some point in both Egypt and Mesopotamia, people realize that you've got silver or gold and they could be used as a form of money because A, they're metallic, they're long-lasting. They'd, they'd already been working in copper and then eventually bronze, but they found this, these other metals that were too soft, but quite beautiful, actually, gold especially. And they realized, well, wait a minute, we can start using these. These are high-value items. And what's nice about them is they're malleable and we can make them into decorative elements for jewelry or uh, garments, crowns, whatever. So what we find is in the archaeological record, you start to see hordes of pieces of metal, uh, not shaped in any particular way. In Egypt, you'd find uh, wire, uh, silver wire, for example cut into different lengths. And apparently, these were used as a form of money. They would be weighed out individually and then uh, used in exchange for other things. And other commodities began to be valued in terms of how much silver they would be worth in terms of weight. You get the same thing with gold. In Mesopotamia, that system became very well developed. So you see records of how much silver was exchanged by merchants for a given quantity of sheep or, or bulk loads of wheat or other things. And interestingly, they came very close to the idea of money as we know it, uh, way back as far as the uh, 14th century BC, when in Assyria and other associated places in the middle of Iraq and that, that area, they began to take silver bars and stamp them. And they would stamp them with a mark uh, showing that uh, so-and-so merchant had handled this, that this was something that had a weight on it. They weren't standardized, but they, they had markings to show how much that particular bar or lump of metal was worth. And these were fairly large pieces compared to, say, coins. Then which came first, the use of gold and silver as a standard of value or the use of gold and silver as a decorative object, a precious object for, for jewelry, etc.? Because I, I, I'm think as you're describing things, I'm, I'm realizing I, I never really thought about which was the chicken and which was the egg. Like, is, is gold considered to be valuable as a decorative object because it's also used as a commodity basis for money? or was gold already valued for its decorative properties? And then because it was valuable, but not really all that useful in a practical sense, then that's, is that why it became the, the basis 
for these transactions and, and as a, a standard that was approaching a monetary standard. Which came first? Is, is gold, did gold become money because it was already considered valuable or did gold start to be considered valuable because it was being used as money? Well, I, I believe the, the answer to that question is that it, it became used as a form of money because of its already uh, recognized properties as being beautiful. But primarily, one of the things you have to understand with money is that people have always been very conservative about money. In the United States, for example, we use the word penny constantly when we talk about the cent. Well, the United States has never produced a penny. As a you know, ever since independence, we've had the cent as part of our regular issue since 1792, when the mint was first started. We've had a cent. We've never had a penny that we produced as a regular issue coin. Well, the reason why we use pennies because the British used pennies, and we were originally British colonies. And this kind of carryover of old terms goes way back into history. So what ended up happening was you want your money to be stable. As part of that stability, the use of the same name appears over and over again across cultures, across civilizations. Uh, gold, the important fact about gold was that aside from its beauty and all that, it was unchangeable. So if you got a piece of gold, it didn't rust, it didn't tarnish, it stayed the same. So it was beautiful and, and valuable because it was relatively rare, but it was easy to work. It could be used in lump form and transported somewhere else to be made into something else. And it didn't change. And this is a, a, a thing that people like about money. A cow will grow old and die. Uh, if you eat it, it's no longer useful as money. If you tr make it travel over a long distance, it might starve to death or it might get very skinny and be worth less to the user on the other end, whereas gold doesn't change. Silver has some of the same properties. It, it will tarnish. However, it doesn't rust, and it will also last longer. It's also relatively more common, so it could be used as a less expensive form of money. And they're also not all that useful aside from their monetary or decorative role, right? It's not like, not like we're using, if we used soap as a monetary standard, then it's like, oh, now I need to take a bath. So it, so what's it going to cost me? You know, you, there's no gold and silver. You would not be, ever be tempted to use them for anything else. And that seems like it would be helpful too. Yeah. And also if they were used as jewelry, they have, they retain value as jewelry because of their content. Converting back and forth between jewelry and money per se is yeah. relatively easy. So this, the ability of gold and silver to last and not change contributed significantly to its choice as a form of money. But it also, the high intrinsic value of gold and silver became an important element in terms of long distance trade because rather than have to carry a hundred cows across the river or, you know, over long distances, have them travel on their own two, uh, on, on, on two feet. <laughs> That's not a full, not a full value cow if it's traveling on its own exactly. two feet. <laughs> uh, you know, rather than have, having to travel with a hundred cattle over a long distance, 
you could carry a small amount of silver or even smaller amount of gold in a bag and have all the value you needed for your long distance trade to wherever you're going. You could buy the herd of cattle and then bring it back or whatever. So gold and silver were also convenient in terms of longer distance trade and larger amounts of items being traded. This reflects again the, the idea that society is getting larger, more sophisticated, uh, more people are living in larger groups, living closer together, and therefore trade with people that you don't know is becoming more and more important, necessitating some sort of system of value that everybody accepts, even if they don't know each other. Then at some point, someone had the idea to create something that looks more like a, a modern coin, coinage as we now know it. So when and where and what particular problem were they trying to solve? Because they, there was already a, an ability to have exchange based on some kind of commodity standard and gold and silver. But then the invention of coinage gave more of a, an official approval to this whole enterprise. So when and where did this happen, this conversion from general commodity transactions to then coins as we know it? And, and then what was, the, what was the cause and what was the consequence of that innovation? There are several theories for this. Uh, the, the one that I tend to lean towards the most was it was a coincidence of uh, a number of factors that coincided at the same time to make it possible for coinage as we think of it to appear. And where it appeared was in the middle of Lydia, which is in the center of modern day Turkey. It happens that Lydia was a fairly advanced kingdom at the time. The form of the money uh, was influenced by the location. They, they had uh, sources of electrum, which was a, uh, an alloy of gold and silver that, were, that occurred naturally in their rivers and streams. So you could actually, apparently in the ancient days, pan it out of the streams, and it would come in this alloy. So it's natural that they started using these pieces of mixed gold and silver. They probably didn't realize they were mixed at first, but eventually they did. So electrum became a standard that was used in that region. At some point in approximately the very late 8th century BC, people began using these lumps of electrum. Instead of just using them as lumps of metal uh, and weighing them at every turn, um, an enterprising merchant came up with the idea that, well, wait a minute. If we weigh these pieces to start with and weigh a bunch of them, make them about the same weight, in the future we can use these without having to weigh them and make a standard coin. They didn't come up with the word coin yet. but um, And these pieces could be made to conform to the weight standards of the time. So uh, in each of the major uh, civilizations, empires, they had a standard of weights. In Lydia, the, they used a system that was very similar to what the Greeks used, uh, basing their standard weight. So what happened was some enterprising merchant came up with the idea of standardizing the weight of the electrum pieces that they used 
on the weight system of the time. Uh, we use the Greek words for the weight system. So they used the stator. Now a stator, depending on where you were, uh, what empire, what region you were in, might have a different standard weight. But basically the stators as we know of were what would later be called a tridram, uh, basically 12 grams. This would vary in different areas. And so what happens is you start seeing these lumps of metal that are weighed to a certain standard and they all fit within a system of standards. So you'll have a stator, a half stator, a quarter stator, a 32nd stator. They would get down to 128th of a stator, which would be a very, very small piece of metal. But we know they existed because we find them. Uh, and uh, that little tiny piece of metal, smaller than the, you know, about the size of the head of the uh, point of a pen, those pieces had enough value that they would be used to purchase, say, a drink or something. Uh, the larger pieces would be worth a lot more than that, say, you know, two weeks or a month's worth of uh, pay for something. At this point, are the lumps, are they just lumps, or do they have any kind of mark indicating that they've been weighed or, or cre and or created in some either official way or some verifiable way? They start out as lumps, and then very soon afterwards, we start to see what are known as striated lumps. So they end up with a small piece of metal that's roundish or oval in shape, but it has a flat side to it, and it has uh, lines in it, these striations, with a punch on the other side. So one side will be flat with these linear marks on it, and the other side will actually have an impression that was made by a, a piece of metal being used to hammer the design into the other side of the coin. So now you have coins that have a mark, presumably because they are marks, people, the merchants using them and other people using them would understand that these are weighed and therefore uh, fit a standard and they could use them in exchange uh, more easily than previously. And it's, the, it's at the level of a merchant or an individual person who would do the creation, right? At this point, it's not, it's not a government function, or, or is it? Or when does it become a government function to, to do this standardization? And this is where there's a, a large question mark. To the extent that we know this is a merchant-based thing, because the next step was the introduction of designs on the coins. So the, among the earliest coins we found uh, archaeologically, there are pieces that are mixed in lumps of metal, lumps of metal with the striations and the, and the punch mark, and then early designs. In fact, uh, these designs uh, are somewhat difficult to interpret, but we do have a very, very early piece that's dated to somewhere in the, the say, uh, 650s BC, perhaps, uh, and the dates are very conjectural, that actually has Greek writing on it. And this coin, which is part of a series of coins, has the name of a person. Essentially, it's written in Greek in a 
declension that basically says, I am a Fanny's. So I belong to Fanny's or something. Well, Fanny's is a Greek name. We have no idea who it belonged to. There's no king or chief or leader that we're aware of with the name Fanny's from the time frame. And at the same time, uh, it's thought because they're not known that perhaps this was a merchant. Mm -hmm. These staters and half staters are all standardized. They have a deer on them and then they have the writing on them. And it's thought that today these are the earliest coins with writing on them and they become a critical element in what we think perhaps was the, the evolution of coins because the next step was governments took control of the coins. Starting with the the kingdom of Lydia, the dynasty put the image of their dynasty on the coins. With a stator, they would have a lion and a bull facing each other. Mm -hmm. And these were known to archaeologists as the symbol of the dynasty of the ruling kings of Lydia because you find them on their government buildings, their palaces. Uh, It's a symbol that is used. It's, It's a a badge uh, somewhat like a feudal knight's symbol, mm-hmm. and they're identified with the kings of Lydia. Usually on a very small scale, right? like ancient coins. I mean, coins are never that large, but I've always been impressed at how small ancient coins can be. You mentioned the very tiny lumps, but you know, plenty of ancient coins are half the diameter of a dime or maybe even less. So you have to, sometimes you have to really look to see what the design is like i've found looking at ancient coins sometimes and looking at a really small one i don't even know which way is up necessarily but then reading you know it's a lion and a deer for example then you then you can kind of make it out so it's got it was done on a very small scale yeah this is something you have to recognize uh is that uh, a quarter is a lot larger than most ancient coins, uh, particularly before the Roman period, you do not see very many coins that are larger than a quarter. And in fact, the earliest coins, most of them are about the size of a dime, but they're not regular enough to be associated with a dime because they're oval in shape or sometimes semi-circular, but not quite a perfect circle. You have to recognize that these pieces are all hand-struck um, and produced one at a time from irregular lumps of metal that are weighed out, but not uh, formed in a perfect mold. They're, they're formed in imperfect molds, or perhaps without a mold at all, and then shaped slightly. So is it true, or is it an urban ancient legend, or an ancient urban legend, um, that people would carry coins in their mouths. Well, apparently it must be, it must have some element of truth to it because it appears in the plays of Aristophanes, for example, where they talk about uh, people carrying the very small coins. These are small uh, denomination pieces. So you're talking about pieces that would be, uh, you know, half the size of a dime, for example, and they would carry them under their tongue in their mouth. Uh, they, they joke about that, and I'm sure there must have been all sorts of interesting uh, <laughs> stories about what happens if you 
if you lose one. Right. It's not, it's not good for the person or good for the coin, but I, I can also imagine one day some innovator in the ancient world came along and said, I've invented this great thing called the pocket. <laughs> you don't, don't have to carry <laughs> things in your, in your mouth and you can just put them in a pocket. And then I suppose the wallet was later, um, uh, even later than that, but uh, yeah, very different than we imagine things today. But back to the creation of the coin. So when, when there was this turn or the, there was the progression from lumps to then marked lumps and then to government marked lumps uh, or government marked items more regular than lumps. But my sense is that it's that last transition from when it was still being done by merchants, that was like pre coinage. And then it, it became coinage as we know it, as we understand it today, when there started to be some official government involvement in creating, regulating, and maintaining the standards of the coinage. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's correct. Because coinage as we know it requires an issuing authority. Uh, and this is for a number of reasons. Governments jumped on, on the bandwagon because it allowed them to create a, a system, a, a standard that allowed them to, to uh, collect taxes more easily. Uh, it also al allowed them to regulate the marketplace more easily, uh, which was a way of increasing the wealth of their kingdom. But also, they got on to, onto the business of producing money because there was a profit to be made in it. In order to meet the costs of uh, producing the, the money, you had to pay somebody, even if they were a slave managed by free men or, or whatever, there was a cost involved in producing the coins. So to use modern terms, a dollar was worth a dollar, not because the government said that, but because it had that amount of silver in it. Well, realistically, to cover the cost of producing the coinage, uh, you had to, to keep back some of that silver. So a dollar would actually have 97 cents or 96 cents worth of silver in it. And part of that would be a profit that would go to the king. Mm -hmm. And they realized very early on, it was like, it's one of the very few sources of money that, that kings would have other than taxation straight up from the people. If they could make a profit by making this intermediate object that would make taxation simpler and also make economic transactions simpler, why not do that? Um, so government became very jealous about the right to issue coinage. And then foreshadowing, I think especially when we talk about Roman coins in a future episode, at some point you're not no longer dealing with back in the modern equivalent a dollar coin with 97 cents worth of silver but that's a that's a variable that can be manipulated yes. and you can put in 95 cents worth of silver 94 cents 90 cents 85 cents you can gradually debase the coinage and uh serves a short-term purpose but in the long run provides some greater difficulties so uh, i know that's a that's a huge story of the coinage of the Roman Empire, so this is uh, probably mostly foreshadowing at this point. But once you once you get into that nature of of the issue, that becomes a, a possibility. Yeah, and this leads to what I mentioned earlier: this coincidence of events. So the Lydians come up with this system 
in an area where trade had already developed and they were using lumps of metal regularly, they came up with the idea of marking the coins with their own royal mark and making it their own. And as part of that, that meant that they had a responsibility or a desire to ensure the quality of their money. Because one of the things that people may not understand is that about 24 hours after the first coin was invented as a fixed value item, uh, counterfeiters got involved. Because <laughs> we know that counterfeit coins appear very, very early on. Uh, people have always uh, been very aware of the value of things. And when somebody realized that, geez, I could take this piece of metal that's not quite pure silver or quite pure gold or something and mark it and have it be the uh, same weight as one of the silver or gold pieces, I could save a lot of money and buy things with it. Then the first counterfeiter appeared basically after the first coin. But my expectation would be that the first coin collector probably didn't appear until after the second coin, when yeah. there was some, at least some, some variation in what they might encounter and therefore might collect. Uh, but at, the, at, at this point, first coin, apocryphal first counterfeiter and apocryphal first collector, the action is still in, in Lydia. Yes. Which is not, it's not that far from Greece, but in the ancient world, you know, it was, it was still some distance. But still, uh, what's remarkable to me is that over the next one century, maybe two centuries, then coinage spread everywhere in the Greek world. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time as we continue our story.